Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hi, this is Graham Brown, and this is part two of my 50 Trends update, sharing with you the key trends in Asia in 2018 in the startup ecosystem. So in part one, we looked at all the input factors in the startup ecosystem. We looked at entrepreneurialism, like, for example, the data here from Shenzhen, 16% of the adult population in Shenzhen are engaged in entrepreneurship. We looked at why, what's driving the market. We looked at investment economy. Now, what I want to look at is the other part of the equation, which is the people behind the startup ecosystem. So starting here with trend number 20, and what I'll do is I'll walk through from 20 to 36 in this section. And in part three, you can get the rest, which is the remainder of the 50 trends. And by the way, you can get all this free from my website, asiatechresearch.com. Number 20, Asian FOMO, fear of missing out. We're at a stage now where Asia has moved from becoming a high risk uh, component of anybody's career to now probably one of the, the least risky options for somebody, especially in the startup space. We're moving from this era in the 80s and 90s when I came to Asia, where Asia was a frontier market, where you know I moved to Japan in the mid-90s at the end of the bubble. Now we're in this situation where people are moving to Asia because they're opportunists. They can see that there are real opportunities now in Asia. However, the three things which are often uh, used as criticisms of any kind of startup ecosystem and why they don't measure up to somewhere like Silicon Valley are capital, access to talent, and access to consumers. And now Asia has all of these things, if not more so. We're moving into this third stage of the startup ecosystem in Asia, which is Asian FOMO, which is basically fear of missing out on Asia. So, you know, in the next stage, just obscured here on the chart, 2020 onwards, we will see people moving to Asia because they fear missing out on the Asian century. That's 20. One of the reasons why people are increasingly attracted to Asia is because the stories of Asian success are now propagating throughout the world. I mean, Jack Ma recently was in Davos speaking English. He was an English teacher before he started Alibaba. He knows how to speak. He knows how to interact with the world. He knows how to communicate. Until Jack Ma, the names of Asian entrepreneurs outside of Asia were pretty much unknown, only except by a very few Asian observers. People may have known Lee Ka-shing, may, you know, people may have known some of the entrepreneurs from Singapore and so on. However, nobody really knew to the extent that they know a Mark Zuckerberg or a Mark Cuban or, you know, the, the Google boys or Jeff Bezos. The Asian entrepreneurs did not stand shoulder to shoulder with Western entrepreneurs and almost always white entrepreneurs, white men. That's changing. We're going to start seeing a new era of entrepreneurs coming out of Asia who we don't even know yet. Billionaires who we haven't heard of yet. So Jack Ma is just the, the tip of the spear, really, in leading that vanguard. And it's not just men as well. There's an interesting development. Let's start with the basics. In terms of women as well, the glass ceiling. So the data shows us that female entrepreneurship in emerging markets is higher than developed markets, 13% of females in emerging markets versus 10% in developed markets. It's not a big difference, but it's significant enough to show that they have an edge in these 
new emerging economies. In Vietnam, for example, 30% of company directors are women. Now, I don't think you find those kind of levels of female emancipation in entrepreneurship anywhere in the world or those kind of levels, maybe somewhere in North Europe, but very rare. Be challenged. You know, you can let me know at Asia Tech Pod if that's the case. But for a place like Vietnam, which is a very much a frontier market, those figures are phenomenal. And then you have on top of that, the billionaires. So the grassroots, I just talked about the billionaires on top of this. The data here shows that Asia leads in terms of percentage of female billionaires who are self-made. Have a look at the data again. Asia, 55% of female billionaires were self-made. However, um, you know, the, the alternative to that is obviously inherited. The USA, 19%, and Europe, around about 7%, data from UBS. This is very interesting because that tells us that the role models which Asia is pushing out, especially for women, are women who made it on their own volition, made it in their own right. They didn't become rich and famous because they inherited from their parents, which is often the case in the West in at least 80% of, of instances. I mean, the Hiltons are a great example, right? These are people who made their money, not through any graft of their own, but just by inheriting that money. Whereas in Asia, more than half have made their own money. Let's unpack the demographics a little bit. And this is where it becomes interesting in Asia, because Asia has a real demographic advantage over the rest of the world. Not everywhere. It's not distributed evenly, I should add. One billion young people. So there's 1.4 billion young people under the age of 25 years old in Asia. It's phenomenal. That market is all coming online. There's a real bonus of having young people in any market. I mean, I spent 20 years, best part of 20 years, working with telecoms and young people and helping telecoms market understand young people. And I saw everywhere in the world, there were young people, there was innovation, there was change, there was heavy adoption of new mobile services. And this is spread across all kinds of new technology. So wherever you have young people, you have this advantage that not only are they open to new services, the cost of educating the market is much lower and the speed of adoption of those services is much faster. So let's have a look at the demographic advantage here broken down. If you take the older economies, Japan, Obviously, it's in Asia, but it's very much an old economy. The average age in Japan is 46.1 years, same as Germany. Now, the problem with these markets is that somebody has to pay for the generation that isn't working. So in Japan, if everybody is... You know, sorry, in Japan, as an example, the same in Germany, if you have a large old population who are retired, somebody has to support that population. Somebody has to create wealth. Somebody has to create services for them. And when you have a population of 46.1 average median age, then you have a population where it's becoming increasingly imbalanced. If you look at the population pyramid, it's more and more 
sitting at the top of that pyramid, it's almost becoming like an inverse pyramid, which is the problem in Japan and Germany. You have these very low birth rates. And that's why immigration is one of the solutions to those low birth rates. It's not popular solution by any means, but it's probably the only solution in a place like Japan and Germany. And it comes with a lot of issues as well. Whereas if you look at the younger countries, the Philippines, Myanmar, India, as an example, Malaysia as well, the average age is around about 25 years. So think about that, that if the average person is 25 years in this country, that person is creating wealth, paying taxes, is less likely to be sick or dependent is more likely to be consuming services like technology, is more likely to be borrowing money to buy a house and create wealth. So all of that is happening in the market in these countries like Philippines, Myanmar, India, Malaysia, etc. Whereas in the other countries, Canada, Germany, Japan, it's aging its way into obscurity. Let's flick through here. On top of the age factor, we have the middle classes. And this is a fundamental driver in the the rise of Asia. By 2030, two-thirds of the world's middle classes will live in Asia. Think about that, because I mentioned before, the three factors which are often used as a differentiating point between Silicon Valley or any other Western ecosystem and Asia is that third point, which is access to consumers, Asian consumers have always been viewed as a market of billions, but, you know, cheap, a little bit uneducated when it comes to brands. You know, these were the loud consumers who just bought everything, which was Fendi or Gucci or Prada. And also, you know, maybe easy to target. They would take anything, you know, they would take, you know, if you sold cheese to China, they would buy it regardless of what it was, just because it came from abroad. Those were the sort of the the old school mindsets about marketing to Asia. However, now we have this growing wealthy middle class who have money, who think more or less in the same ways that the Western middle classes do. They think about education, saving, financial products. They think about insurance. They think about the future of their children. They think about property, all these kind of things, which for the non-middle classes, for the working classes, I suppose as you would call them, are luxuries. But now you have this generation of lifestyle services appearing with this Asian middle class. And whereas before, Asia was very much geared towards exporting to the Western middle classes. Now Asia has its own local middle classes to sell to. So it's not just all about Asia being the servant or the factory of the Western middle classes. Asia now has its own middle classes who happily absorb all those new products and ideas. And just look at the numbers here. China will have five times as many middle class households as the US by 2020. Just think about this. 250 million middle class households in China by 2020. And 50 million in the States no, it's just phenomenal, the, the numbers. from in, in a decade, the number of middle-class households in China has doubled, whereas the US, it's pretty much remained the same from 52.5 to 52 million. So what's happening is this explosion of middle-class in China and across Asia, people who have money. And the middle-class in Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, these cities 
you know, they're not that different to the middle classes in New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Take your pick. So now we have these consumers who have probably as much money as their Western counterparts, but now exist in multiples of what we knew from experience in the West. Just flipping back here, just add to this, these middle-class markets, there's also this concept of earning potential. And I really like this, this stat, and this is slide 51 in the 50 Trends report, powerful youth markets, because this is really important in terms of the political landscape and the cultural economic landscape of these countries. So if you were Chinese or you were Indian, you would reach your peak earning potential between the ages of 30 and 39. So in China, the peak earning potential is between 30 and 34. And in India, your peak earning potential would be between 35 and 39. In the US, by comparison, the peak earning potential is between 55 and 59. So what this is saying is that Chinese and Indian people are earning their peak earnings 20 years before they would in the US. So where is the power in the market? Because where there's money, there's power. In Western economies, old people have the power. It's the 50-year-olds. It's the you know, the parents, it's the boomer generation. They are the ones with the money. And therefore, they will dictate, you know, the rules of society, ecosystems, and so on. It's the old adage, the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. So in China and India, for example, the people who have the gold, so to speak, are the younger generations. So these are people most open to change, most open to try new things, most open to adapt, you know, these are the ones who are going to be most open towards entrepreneurship, taking risk, whereas the older people are going to be more thoughtful and more focused on security, pensions, stability, keeping things as they are, which has a profound impact, if you think about it, for us in the tech ecosystem. Now, Let's bring this around to innovation. This is a subject which has been sort of pushing through on those last sets of data about demographics. When you have young people, when you have that openness to change and you have this middle class, what now happens is you have a, an innovative culture forming. And slide 54 in the report, no longer copycats, re reflects the fact that in Asia, uh, Asia isn't just about cheap knockoffs. Plenty of those are still there. It's still a big part of the manufacturing industry and some of these factories out in Asia. But Asia is able now to produce its own innovation. So that whole sort of argument about, okay, yeah, Asia has all the productive advantage and the, the, the workforces of billions, and et cetera, et cetera. But where are the creatives? Well, Asia filed more patents than any other region in 2017. And you just look at how it's happening in AI, for example. I'm not going to share the data here. It's in the other reports, if you go into more depth, but Asia, in particular China, filed significantly more patents in AI than any other country. 
and significantly more than the US by a long margin. And why why that's important is because, you know, Asia is not just relying on the US or Silicon Valley for innovation. Asia is producing its own innovation now. And a lot of this is happening off the radar. And a lot of it's not getting credit because it's not coming from people like Facebook or Google or so on. And some of it isn't technology. So the new retail experiences that are sort of a combination of all those factors I talked about. So the middle classes, openness to innovation, and you know, the young demographics. And then you have these these thought leaders and these these entrepreneurs emerging, like Jack Ma, for example. You have all this sort of coming together in these new retail fronts. And what's happening in retail in Asia will blow a lot of people away. The retail experiences that are being created in Asia are unlike anything that we know in the West. I mean, just consider the the basics. The, the, the fundamental of that is, for example, shopping malls. Like the top 10 largest shopping malls in the world are all in Asia now. So there's no shortage of people ready to buy this stuff. What now is needed is people who can go and innovate and create a new experience on top of that. So it's people like Alibaba, as an example, who are going in and just completely disrupting that retail environment and creating these new experiences. So it's not just about what we had known for 20 years, which was, you know, Chinese knocking out cheap knockoffs of Western brands or cheap electronics. Now the creating is very much this lifestyle layer to the ecosystem, which now even maybe the West can learn from and borrow and use in their own countries. Why not? And we're seeing innovation being driven by this uptick in services and service providers who can help foster and gear innovation to the needs of investors and a wider market. And startup accelerators are a key part of this. And Trend 32 in the 50 Trends report really highlights this growth in startup accelerators in Asia. And we've seen an explosion of startup accelerators. Accelerators, the goal of an accelerator, the role of an accelerator is to take a fledgling startup and ready them for the market, often by finding investment for them. And to sort of nurture that accelerator, sorry, nurture that startup within a short time frame, often three months. And when you have an evolving ecosystem, a startup ecosystem, you need these professionalized professionalized institutions like startup accelerators to help shape that, to, to turn just, you know, what is raw ideas and raw entrepreneurialism into something that works and to download that experience. A lot of these founders are people who don't necessarily have the market experience, but just have great drive and great ideas and a great product. They need help, advice to kind of nurture that into the market. And when you see this uptick in accelerators all over Asia, you know that the startup ecosystem is professionalizing. It's no just it's not just a cottage industry anymore. It's becoming more and more process driven, more and more understood and defined. So all those sort of factors driving innovation that we talked about earlier now are finding the sort of grassroots structures which Asia is putting together to help, you know, make Asia more competitive at the end of the day. And, you know, this is no longer just about 
the West taking innovation to Asia. This is about Asia now saying, okay, we have the people, we have the capital, uh, we have the middle classes, we have the infrastructure. Now we're going to create this ecosystem which is going to take innovation to the next level and export that not just to the West, but also back to Asia because Asia now has a growing need for this stuff, right? And as those accelerators mature, and as we're starting to see in key tier one cities in Asia, like Singapore, Hong Kong, maybe Shanghai, that accelerators are starting to niche out. So they're starting to turn from just being generic accelerators to specific accelerators, like, for example, Xeroth, who are an AI-based accelerator in Hong Kong. And what's happening there is that now accelerators have established themselves and have created this first sort of stepping stone of the foundation for innovation and startups in Asia. The next step is to say, okay, right, well, maybe we need an accelerator for this specific vertical. So it could be a food-based accelerator, as there are in places like Singapore, or it could be uh, a, an application-based accelerator like AI. And now we're starting to see this niching down of accelerators across Asia. That's a real, that's the next step of professionalization of the startup ecosystem and innovation. And at a speed, really, which is maybe faster than the West, because maybe, you know, Asia started from zero, so it has less of a legacy. So it has more to win and less to lose in terms of creating this startup ecosystem. So, you know, why not create all these neat accelerators and just see what happens? The key, and what I want to end with, the last couple of points in the development of the startup ecosystem in Asia, you take all these, these factors which we've talked about. So you talk about the middle classes, you talk about the rise of capital, the, the growth in in innovation, accelerators. What's happening now is that the more mature markets in Asia, particularly I'm talking about China, are starting to see a crowded market form. So whereas China was a frontier market for many years and then became an opportunist market, and now there's that fear of missing out, people piling into Shenzhen and Shanghai and Beijing because they fear that if they're not there, you know, it's going to impact their career. And very much investors are doing that as well. What's happening now is that there are far too many startups in relation to capital compared to what there were five years ago. What that means is that, I mean, as an example, I'll just flip through very quickly here to the last one. In terms of platforms, take, you know, bike sharing as an example you know, this I haven't got the data to hand, but bike sharing in China is f much more advanced than it is in the rest of the world. And there are many reasons for that. One of the reasons being that, you know, uh, there's less of a legacy in terms of public transport compared to, or, you know, even private transport compared to the West. There's, you know, a, a younger population, they're more open to innovation. And then there's the investment side of things. It's much easier to get investment in these markets for such a scheme, a bike sharing scheme. What's happening now is, I mean, if you go to Shanghai or Beijing, there's not just one bike sharing, there's handfuls of bike sharing schemes. So if you were an investor, now you have choice. 
So what does that mean? And it impacts capital and the movement of capital in these markets. Until recently, you could probably have got, you know, the best returns for your money in China compared to anywhere else in the world. I mean, the, the economy was growing at seven plus percent a year. You had all these rapidly growing startups springing up around you who needed help. You were getting a, a premium, you know, you're getting at a bargain, I should say, rather than a premium. People could invest into these startups. Like the very early days of the internet, you could get on board with a very good trade. But now that's all, you know, the arbitrage in the market has meant that, you know, that those sort of deals are disappearing. And now capital can choose, you know, I've got, well, I've got five bike sharing schemes to choose between now. That Why do I have to choose just one? So risk capital. So this portion of the capital market, which seeks outsized returns with the more aggressive returns, not talking about people investing their pension funds or their 401ks. We're talking about people seeking the big returns. They're looking for the next big thing, the frontiers. They ain't going to find that in China anymore. Sure, there are still many, many good deals left in China, but the really, really sharp end of the market is found elsewhere. So now what's happening, risk capital is coming out of China into Southeast Asia or other frontier markets because it's looking for the outsized returns. If I want to get a 10x, I ain't going to get that in China anymore because there's there's a thousand people competing for that deal. What's happening now then is... Those cash-rich unicorns like the Alibabas, the JDs, the Tencents, the DDs, all these cash-rich companies in China who've built up billions in their war chests in cash who still need to go back to their investors and say, hey, look, this is the growth story that I'm going to talk to you about. And this is the reason why you can continue investing in me because... I'll continue delivering returns. They ain't going to find that in China anymore. They're having now to go to Southeast Asia to find those returns. And what what's happening, started happening the last couple of years and increasingly more so in 2018, it's the Alibaba's and Tencent who are going into Southeast Asia and they're buying up the platforms. They're buying up the e-commerce players. They're buying up the payment systems because that's going to give them their next growth story that they can go back to the investors with and say, this is the reason why we're going to continue returning double digit growth over the next X number of years. So that risk capital is moving out. And this really sort of goes full circle on all of that. You know, those key input factors, which is like the demographics, the capital, innovation, the startup ecosystem maturing. Now, Asia is taking its innovation back to the world. And just the Bike sharing schemes are just the tip of that spear, which will take Asia to the world. We're going to see far more over the next five years of platforms, technology, services, which were born in Asia, built in Asia for Asian consumers, which now are being exported to the rest of the world as better options and that, for me, is like the full circle of that whole story, starting with people moving to Asia and helping build that ecosystem to Asia now finding its feet, then having the confidence to export that back to the world. Hopefully, that was interesting for you. Those were trends 20 to 36 of my 50 trends report. 
the last section coming up now, part three of the 50 Trends Report. You can get everything on asiatechresearch.com. Thanks so much for listening, watching, whichever format you're consuming this in. And if you have any questions or any comments, you can tweet me at asiatechportal or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. My name's Graham Brown. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.